Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. In the first half of today's episode, we will be doing first edition versus worst edition, and, <laughs> which will make more sense in due course, which I, we tend to say after all our titles at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and in the second half, we'll be looking at two very different novels about women setting up bookshops, Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley and The Education of Harriet Hatfield by Mae Sarton. Um, which I'm looking forward to talking about. But yeah. first of all, Rachel, how are you and what are you reading? I'm okay. I'm a bit sad this weekend because it's officially the end of my summer holiday. I'm back at work next week. Oh, are you? Uh... Yeah, which I know. I'm sure everyone's like bleeding hard. <laughs> it's been week literally months. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it always comes around so quickly, Simon. And you have been writing it. your master's. I've done my master's dissertation. I finished my second um, book. I write books for teachers, so I've written a second one. Um, yeah, you've written the second one. Well done. Yes, thank you. Teaching 19th century literature. Nice. Um, so it's all tied in very nicely with the master's. Um, I've read a lot of books, been on some, a couple of nice UK breaks, which has been lovely. Um, I haven't moved house, which is a shame, but, you know, next month. All in due course, yeah. All in due course, yes. Yeah. So um, I'm actually I've, I'm reading my way through Dorothy L. Sayers at the moment. Those of you who are on Twitter might have seen that I'd, I'd asked for some advice about where to start. So I've gone back to the beginning and I'm on book three now. And Simon is in despair because he doesn't get the Dorothy love. But I'm just obsessed. I can't put them down. Yes. Well, well, at some point when Rachel has read the two books that I've read by Sayers, we can discuss them. But I've, yeah. I've refused to read any more. So... <laughs> not being helpful at all but yes sorry sorry everyone um sorry dorothy well maybe i think you know if you reread them you might change your mind but anyway we'll never know (laughs) um i am i just started a book called two lives by janet malcolm which is non-fiction about gertrude stein and alice b Toklas. um have you ever read any gertrude stein yeah, I had to at university. It wasn't really my thing. Oh, right. Which did you read? Was it the autobiography of Alice B. Tucker? Yes, I think so. So I've only read one, which is Blood on the Dining Room Floor, which I hated. And I, she just, I don't know, I, I quite like modernist literature um, and some modernist writers I think are really, really amazing. Virginia Woolf obviously being the, mm-hmm. the main case in point. But with Stein, I just felt like it was impenetrable and unreadable. So. But even yes. while I was reading it, I thought, I think I'd be more interested in her life than in her writing. So I bought this and, book. You know, sometimes that's the case, isn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting book so far because Malcolm sort of throws you straight into it. She starts off by comparing an event that happened in France in three different versions. I'm thinking, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> I'm not ready to like, compare Manuchai of whether or not they had a colonel evicted from his house. <laughs> but, but, um, but it sort of works. It's quite quite strange. Um, okay. and, I, and I'm loving that it's cold and rainy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yes. It's only been a, two or three weeks since we last recorded during the blistering heat wave, but now it's a proper British bank holiday weekend in that it's cold and miserable and I'm going to stay inside and drink tea and read books and it's great. Yeah, we are we are back to normal, which is what we like. I was so relieved this morning to wake up and be a little bit chilly. And then um, as the rain started, I just thought, cup of tea chair book sorted it's great i've got the winter duvet out loving life yeah (laughs) 
Um, I do feel a bit sorry for anyone who is coming to England now, having just missed if they if they're after a heatwave, if they have just missed the longest heatwave I can remember. But um, or a heatwave in our terms, I'm sure lots of people listening from different parts of the world would not consider it that. Yes. Everything in my garden died, so they're counting it as a heatwave. <laughs> Because it only struck me somewhat to, somewhere towards the end of it that perhaps I should have done some watering. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, too late now. It'll yeah. come back to life. Yeah, next year. Um, and in fact, to, today or this week sometime is my first anniversary of moving into this flat. So, oh, how exciting. Yeah, it's gone so fast. And I've cemented myself in village life, the fact that I'm running the bull stall at the village fete on Sunday. So, Brilliant. Yeah. Just need to work out what that means. Um, before we move into our first segment, I'm going to do a segment before that. <laughs> That's confusing, isn't it? Uh, a little new one. I asked people on Patreon um, what, what the best books they'd read recently were. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash books. And I had a couple of people tell, uh, respond. So Elizabeth has just read Howard's End and really was really captivated by it. Have you read Howard's End? I have many years ago and I would like to reread it because I watched the TV series that was on, I can't remember now, earlier this year. Uh, and it was lovely. And I thought, I must reread that. And yes, I, I haven't... love Howard's End. It's the only one of his books that I've enjoyed particularly. Yes, me too. I've tried all the others and hated them, but this Howard's End is different somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Gracie has three that she's really enjoyed. So Queen oh. of the Tambourine by Jane Gardam, mm-hmm. um, Diana Atthill's uh, Florence Diary, um, and Amy Bloom's Where the God of Love Hangs Out. Now, I've read none of those. No, I haven't. I have read books by Atthill and Gardam, and I like both of them. I don't think I know who Amy Bloom is. No, how interesting. But yes, you can go and read some some um, persuasive reasons to read all of those, but... um. Yes, thank you for that. I will be intermittently doing that when I remember for future episodes because it's always nice to get other people's recommendations as well. Absolutely. And so the first half of this episode, I wanted to do first edition versus worst edition, partly because it rhymes, partly because I wanted to talk about the lure or otherwise of first editions, but then also my friend Marley suggested we look at things about the physical conditions of a book um, or the way it's been created and how much that does or doesn't put us off so i thought it could sort of go together they're not necessarily exactly the same thing but they they fit together somewhat yes Uh, do you have any strength of feeling around first editions um well i wouldn't say that i was an obsessive first edition collector i do like to try and get first editions of books that are special to me um and i do like to collect books that that look beautiful so for example um, if I really enjoy, say, a, a Persephone book, for example, I'll, I'll try and find a, an original copy of it um, that's got the dust jacket and everything because mm-hmm. I just I just like the look of older books on my shelves. Um, and I am I'm not massively fussy about condition though. I actually quite like it if it's got some watermarks on it or it's got um, folded down ends or writing in because it's all part of its history. Yeah, my friend Paul, who listens to this, hi Paul, um, is a big collector of first editions. He always tries to get signed, signed firsts. Of, well, I don't even think it's particularly books he likes. I think just books <laughs> you think might be worth something later. <laughs> um, oh, right. Well, he does it with all the Booker Prize winners as well, which is you know, quite a fun, um, I guess, collection. But yes, I've never really understood the lure of first editions. I do definitely understand why one might want a prettier edition, and often the older editions are prettier. Yes. But um, I'd much rather have a nice 
copy with a dust jacket that was pretty that was a you know fourth edition fifth printing or whatever than something just because it's the first edition and I yes. think, yeah I, I guess it if you are collecting books f- for their financial value then sure but um I do remember reading um Old Books and Rare Friends by Leona Rostenberg and Madeline Stern, I think the names were, who are two older ladies who were book collectors. Um, and I thought it might just be a tale of them loving books together, but basically it was lots about how they'd managed to dupe people out of <laughs> selling their <laughs> rare whatever editions for not very much money, or they found it's such and such, Louisa May Alcott, first edition, blah, blah, um, And I mean, it's, it is entirely possible to love literature and love book collecting but they do seem to be quite quite different um emotions or different impetuses to towards books because you know book i mean i mean book collecting in the sense of for their value because obviously most readers will have some sort of book collection but um but yes i'd never think oh gosh i must have that because it's worth a lot of money as, as opposed to i want that because i want to read it no, I think it's quite sad to just be thinking about, oh, I'll buy this book because I think in 10 years' time someone might pay me back a lot of money for it. I mean, actually, I take pride on in how little I can get books for. Um, and I will just look for aesthetics, really, or if it's got a particular illustrator that I want the illustrations from or something mm. like that. Um, I'm not bothered about it necessarily being first edition certainly not of older books because they cost a fortune and i don't see the point in spending 500 pounds on a copy of a book that's just the same as if i'd spent five pounds on it for it being 10 years later in printing it doesn't really bother me um but there are a couple of books that i i do have some modern first editions and i quite like the fact that they're first editions but only because i bought them from the charity shop for a pound and they happen to be first mm-hmm. editions I, did, I didn't go looking for them i don't go looking for them I've got to say, quite a lot of the books I have are first editions because the books were never never went into second editions. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's very easy to find first editions of books that no one's trying to collect. Like, you won't be able to find your first edition of Virginia Woolf, but if no. if I'm looking for first edition of, I don't know, I can't think of any examples now. But yes, an author that no one's really read for a while, then probably it's the easiest one to find or cost you a couple of pounds. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, not everything is a Harry Potter as well. So... <laughs> Um, and in fact yeah I say I I do one thing I like about book collecting which I think is not or sorry book reading and owning which I think is a nice distinction from that and you know collecting art or even appreciating wine or food or whatever is that it's very egalitarian It, it doesn't cost you more than a few pounds to read the greatest books that have ever been written um and obviously it costs you nothing if you go to the library but um as opposed to, you know, if you want the finest wines. I mean, I don't know anything about wine, but I suspect a few pounds will not get you the greatest wines ever produced. <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> and the thing is with, with, with books and book collecting, I think collecting a books and the kind of the fun of, of hunting down a particular book that you want is brilliant. Like the excitement of going into the second-hand bookshop and, and looking to see if they're going to have it. Um, and especially when you're looking for something that's quite hard to find and you can't find it on the internet and you can't find it anywhere. Like I still remember the day I finally found Dorothy Nepal's autobiography. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it was only four pounds and it was just super exciting. And it's not as if I needed to spend a lot of money. And the reality is, I mean, no matter what edition you get, the story is the same, isn't it? So I think what's quite nice as well is if you don't have a lot of money, um, you can buy a really cheap skanky edition 
and then you can just bide your time and wait and see if something better comes up and you can buy it when you've got a bit more money or you've saved up or you know if you want to buy something really special and there's only one really special book that I want um edition that I won't buy at the moment because well I just feel, feel like it's ridiculously expensive whenever I look at it online but it's the Peacock edition of Pride and Prejudice um which is an 1890s edition that was beautifully illustrated and has wonderful boards that are impressed with a, pe- a gold peacock um, oh, and sometimes I mean a lot of the time they're like a thousand pounds two thousand pounds and sometimes you manage to find them for a hundred pounds or something like that but for me, the, the thought of even spending £100 is insane on a book, let alone a thousand. So I don't know if I'll ever bring myself to, to buy one. But, you know, if anybody's listening and thinks, <laughs> what a lovely present for Rachel to, you know, give back to all the joy <laughs> she's given me, then, you know, I'd be very glad to receive that unwanted book from your collection. But, <laughs> I'll pop um, it in the yeah, post later. Yeah, thanks, Simon. <laughs> but, the, the, you know, the reality is, I think, there are also things to be, like, an ugly book or something that's not particularly beautiful can have meaning to you for other for you know sentimental reasons it could be the person who gave it to you or um you might have bought it for yourself to commemorate a particular occasion or something and you know it's it doesn't necessarily have to be the most beautiful book in the world but if you love it then it's what matters to you isn't it yeah, I would say the most expensive book that I ever bought is my default thesis. <laughs> so <laughs> certainly a very limited print run. It was the first edition, <laughs> an edition of two, <laughs> but both of which I bought. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and that was £45 per copy. So that, yes, um, it did feel, feel a bit much. But um, I suppose that's what happens when you have very limited print runs, but no one was really crying out to, for that. Um, oh, Simon. Well, I mean, I, I'm willing to print copies for anyone who would like one. I'm willing to pay £45. Pounds, but, uh, it is available online for free if you do wish to read it online instead. Um, how do you often replace uh, like nicer editions or you know, more beautiful editions, books that you already own? Yes, if I find one, I will. Um especially mainly of classic books to be honest or if I've I prefer hardbacks to paperbacks so if I've really enjoyed a book and I've only got it in paperback I will try and find it in hardback and then when I've got the hardback I'll I'll give away the the paperback I just I I don't really paperbacks I really don't like the look of on shelves I don't know why I mean I've got plenty of them obviously but it's just they're not as aesthetically pleasing to me I do shelf my paperbacks in, in the bedroom and the and the hardbacks in the in the living room Hide so, yes. Them away. yes exactly <laughs> don't look at them <laughs> Uh, I do sort of wish I'd waited a bit with Muriel Spark as an example before I, so I own all of her books and they're very, they've been very easy to find in charity shops and things. I don't think I spent more than a couple of pounds in any of them. But, um, I just got lots of 1970s hard, uh, paperbacks and they're all fairly, I mean, not all of them are ugly, but none of them are nice. And then they've just reprinted these lovely uniform editions. Um, they're all hardback and they've, they've got bright colours and they're quite plain and they're just at the bottom it looks like a typewriter and they've highlighted the number in the series it is I mean not oh, particularly nice. in a series but you know, the order that you wrote them yeah yeah um, and every now and then when I'm in the bookshop I think should I throw away or not throw away give away all my paperbacks and buy this entire set I thought well yes you that should that would set me about a, few, a couple hundred pounds or something oh I, really I, I mean not each just for, for all of them yeah. because there's so many she wrote so many books um yeah, she must, there must be at least 20 they've done. Oh, um, right. So, yeah. 
like, well... I didn't realise she'd written that many books, goodness. Oh, yeah, she wrote loads, which is great, and they're all short as well, so... It's a Always <laughs> get music to my ears, yeah. yeah. Um, so, potentially one... Well, maybe I'll just wait a few years until those those ones start appearing in charity shops and just accumulate them that way. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. I mean, to be honest with you, I buy 99% of my books from charity shops, and... For me, there's a real pleasure in hunting and finding out those nicer editions. I I am fussy in terms of I like it to be old rather than new, etc., etc. So, um, and if a book is falling apart, then I'm not going to buy it. Um, and if I'm if it's really grubby, I won't buy it. And also, I cannot stand it when they stink of cigarette smoke. Oh, yeah. That seems that's to thankfully real... happen less and less now. But, yes, it does. Yeah. But, I mean, if that's... Or if it's really musty and mouldy smelling, um, that will yeah. put me off as well. I have heard there's a trick to get rid of that smell, but I've never tried it myself. I think I really love musty smelling books. Like any book that's been in a damp house, I love the smell of it. No, so. I love, that really turns me off. If I get it off the shelf and I'm like, whoa, I can smell the pong. Like, <laughs> no, I, I'm oh. going to have to put that back no matter how lovely it is. For some reason, the smell of damp always makes you think of going on holiday, which says something about the holiday cottages we used to stay at <laughs> the same time, apparently. <laughs> I think they always often used to be like ones belonging to family friends that hadn't been in, no one had been in them for a few months or something. So you get them in that smell. I love it. Happy memories. One of the few books that I have not bought because of the way it looks is I really want to read The American Way of Death by Jessica Mitford. Oh, yes. Um, But it's one of those things I thought I'm not going to buy it online because I'm sure I'll come across it in a shop and I don't need to read it that urgently. Yeah. And I have come across it a couple of times, but always in such hideous editions that I just can't have this on my (laughs) shelf. So, and and in fact, I found it in my most recent trip to Hay but Lorna, who was with with me, also wanted to read it and chivalrously, I let her have it or another interpretation is that she found it and bought it and didn't just give it to me because why should she? (laughs) So, um, so yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I think it is something to consider and, Personally, I mean, I don't really want to have books on my shelves, but I think, oh, that's really hideous. I mean, if if I can't find a nice edition of something I want to read, I'll just get it. I'd rather get it on my Kindle rather than spend, you know, three pounds or four pounds on some hideous paperback that I'm going to hand back. I mean, there are some real decades in book design, I think, that that have not done anyone any favours. <laughs> there are some terrible 1970s and 80s and also 90s paperbacks out there. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and those, and I, I think, to... should be binned. On <laughs> mass. Yeah. Uh, I did have an E.V. Lucas book that eventually I gave away because I didn't know what it was made of. Some sort of fabric cover that I just couldn't touch it because it was so unpleasant. It's like, well, I'm never no. going to read this if I can't pick it up, so I'm going to no. just get rid of it. Um, one thing that I do re- really like, and I think not... Well, not because it increases the value, but I love signed books if I you know, am interested in the author. And I have had people in the past question why I'm interested in that, particularly if I haven't met the author or if the author is long dead, I guess. Um, but I just really like the idea, that sort of proof that, that the um, author once held that book and once wrote in it. And, you know, I've got I think that's really that. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And... I mean, I did, I, again, I've I've never paid over the odds for a signed edition. And in fact, I've got a book signed by Rose Macaulay that cost a pound. And even though it had a note in it saying signed by the author, so the bookshop clearly knew, we just thought no one would care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who uh, were this woman is? Exactly. She scrawled inside the book. Um, 
And I did once buy Dorothy Whiffle and not realise it was signed until I got home. Yes, well, we've all heard that story many times before, haven't we, Simon? Honestly. We have. Brag, brag, brag. One day you'll find a signed by A. Milne and you know, ruin my life in return. Yes, I should come and dance with it in front of your face. Because <laughs> that is one signature I do not have. I would well. love to have a book signed by A. Milne. Again, so yes, if if any of you are sending off that Pride and Prejudice to Rachel... <laughs> Pop an A email and sign one in for me. <laughs> Worth a try. Yeah. <laughs> Never know. Oh so, I mean, I think we both seem to be having rather a consensus on this. Yes, yeah, so I do want to talk about. So, Marley mentioned font, which we haven't mentioned yet. Like, has, uh-huh. So, it's sort of like, I guess more the size, but perhaps the actual font as well. Has that ever made a noticeable difference to your to your reading experience? Um. Yes, actually. I'm thinking about Willa Cather uh, books that were published in the 20s in America uh, by Knopf, I think. They have a wonderful font, uh, all of their books, actually, from the 1920s. And they did really beautiful coloured block printing inside as well, like their their logo and things. And whenever I open a book like that, um, and it's got that lovely, clear, art deco-y kind of font, I think, oh, even if the colour covers are a bit grubby, that would convince me to buy it because I just love looking at it. I do like those facsimile editions that Persephone and Virago have both done of yeah. some, some books where they keep the 1920s font. Um, but I, yeah, for, for me, I get put off, um, if a font is the wrong size. Because, well, I guess now I mostly read with my glasses on anyway, but for quite, quite a few years, I tended to take my glasses off when I was reading. And if the font was too small, um, then I'd find it really hard <laughs> to read. Yeah, I don't like books that are, the, the the words are too close together, or if it's on Bible pages, then I'm out. Oh, yeah, and I want a nice nice margin, don't go right to the edges. Yeah. Yeah. So all those things, like obviously I won't put me off if it's the only edition of a book I really want to read, but otherwise. But sometimes it does really spoil the reading experience if, if you can't get at the words in the right way because you're thinking too much about the the actual act of reading if you you know if it's giving you a headache or if it's well exactly and it makes me feel a bit stressed if i've got too many words on the page it's like you know when you go to a terrible um professional development presentation and someone puts up a powerpoint slide that's just covered in words you're like whoa i can't take all this in i just find it too stressful Normally, um, those sorts of PowerPoints I find in teaching are done by the people who are talking about dyslexia, which I always find hilarious. Oh, no. Like, don't do what I've just done. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. and they always read everything off it as well. It's like, either have it, <laughs> no. either read it or have it on there, not both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, I can read because I am a teacher, but yeah. thanks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's one thing I'm really enjoying about this Janet Malcolm book is it's got lovely wide margins and deckled edges to the paper. So lovely. it all adds to the experience. So yes, I think I really like a nice edition. I just don't care if it's a first edition. <laughs> so, which is, I don't know which of that, which of the first edition versus worst editions. I remember saying this topic to Colin, my brother, a while ago. And he was saying, well, obviously nobody wants the worst edition. That's like contradictory no, terms. But some people don't mind. Some people really don't mind what what books they buy. I've got friends like that who just they're like, oh, I'm like, oh god, that's an ugly book. And they're like, oh, I don't care. I'm just I've, I just want to read what's inside. And then they give the books away as soon as they finish reading them. They don't keep anything. <laughs> and that's coming from you, who loves to give away books. Well, so. you know, yes, but I still because I have too many. This is a problem. <laughs> I have a problem. And, you know, three flights of stairs to move up um, <laughs> when I move with no lift, I might add. So, you know, 
trying to quite. see my back a favour. <laughs> slash the men who are moving things for I was me. I going to say, you're going to have very little involvement in taking those books yeah. at least. I'm just going to stand there and point and give <laughs> point and unhelpful directions. <laughs> They'll be thrilled that you've replaced all your paperbacks <laughs> with hardbacks, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but they look so much better. <laughs> Yeah, well, the last house I lived in, I chose the top floor room rather than the, the middle floor room um, and did it tell my friends this after they'd spent all day moving my stuff in and it was not received very well. <laughs> wow. I mean, what can they expect? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, there was only one floor to my current flat, so there's very little choice about <laughs> where things go. Wow. But you've done a very good job of squeezing them all in, I have to say. Thank you. Yes. Only, only Dickens under the bed. <laughs> the rest is on shelves. And that's where he belongs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor old Dickens. Um, well, so yes, first edition versus worst edition. It, not quite what exactly what we've discussed, but between the two, where are you going to fall down? I'm going to take first edition to be caring about what the book looks like and what edition it is, and I'm going to go with that because I definitely don't like ugly books. Yes, I think if if that's what we're considering them to mean, then I will do the same. But if we're talking about, would you spend a lot of money on a copy of a book rather than not very much just to get the words from it, then I'd go, I'd go towards the worst edition. So, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> the category doesn't really make any sense. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> but hopefully you worked out what we're saying. Basically, we don't want either the first edition or the worst edition, but somewhere in between that's nice but affordable. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, Colin was right, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the second don't, half... Don't give your brother that, can I say? Oh, he won't say? listen to it anyway, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, he does tend to listen to the first half of the episode, so he might not have turned off yet. <laughs> he, yeah. he says he never has intention of reading the set books we talk about, so he doesn't have fun to listening. Oh, Colin, what a supportive brother. I know. Also, someone's having a bit of a, you know, a bit of an angry time outside your window. Oh yeah, no, sorry. We have a, a a car park down below that that has you can't access unless someone lets you in. So it's just constantly people bibbing, oh, hoping man. that someone's going to let them in. But only twenty flats out of the two hundred in this building have a button to let people in, and I'm not one of them. So it's all beautifully organised. Yeah, it gets very yeah. aggressive down there. Very aggressive. <laughs> not long to go, Rachel. Not yeah, long off. to go to so get out of here. No. <laughs> The people watching in Poplar is impressive, I have to say. <laughs> Got a good vantage point from my window. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, yes, two books about women setting up bookshops, neither of which are the bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald, although that would have made an excellent comparison with the May Sarton. Yes, it would have done. Yes. Shame that we missed that, but never mind. But we did it with According to Mark, which in turn would have made a great comparison with Possession. So we're all just one step out each time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, any would, any reference for which of these you'd like to, to quickly summarise? No, I'm happy to do either, so you do what you prefer. Okay. Um, I will do Parnassus on Wheels then, because okay. I've um, read it more recently, although not quite as recently as you, I think. <laughs> Literally today. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, by Christopher Morley, who is an essayist and novelist in the early 20th century. This was published in 1917. Um, it's about Helen McGill, who lives with her brother on a farm, and, and basically he's a writer. He's written books about being a intelligent farmer, basically. So um, 
I can't remember the name of the guy who was famous for writing that sort of book in the early 20th century, but could potentially modelled on him. I'll try and find out and put it in the notes. And All right. There was some guy... No, he was English. Ah. Anyway. But Thoreau did similar things, didn't he? So. Yeah. Um, and she's a bit sick of looking after him and meeting all his needs while he gets to be all literary and she quite like a bit of a moment for herself and that moment comes when the, the small wiry red-haired Mr Mifflin as my blurb refers to him mm. turns up with travelling Parnassus of books which is being towed by a donkey it's a sort of trundling wooden cart with fold down sides that has many books inside and he just travels the countryside um, selling those books and he wants a bit of a break from that, so he's trying to sell it to her brother because he's heard about his reputation, but he's out. So Helen thinks, I'll buy it, and writes a check for $400 and takes it on, and they go off together. He sort of shows her the ropes, and then she's going to spend the next few months at least travelling the countryside, selling books, and, and getting her freedom. Yes, wonderful. Um, so the is it the education of Harriet Hatfield? It oh, is, yes. Yeah. Uh, second guessing myself there, <laughs> is set in the 80s in Boston, um, and in a Boston that's not as swanky as it is nowadays, um, Harriet is older, she's in her 60s, and her her partner, Vicky, has just died, um, and they've been together for half their lives, and Vicky was the, very much the domineering um, part, half of the partnership. She also had a lot of money, she's left... Um, Harriet a lot of money and for the first time in her life Harriet has got the opportunity to do something for herself and she decides what she wants to do is open up a woman's bookshop and she wants to open up this woman's bookshop in a neighbourhood that is up and coming a little bit edgy so she moves away from her very comfortable middle class neighbourhood her lovely home um, and sets herself up in this bit of a kind of crack den area um i don't I mean i don't know boston well enough to know whether that's a true reflection or not um and so she starts up this shop and um it's it's a feminist bookshop it's and and what she wants is to be able to draw together women in the neighborhood and, and it be a kind of a harbor place of refuge for women basically um but there are a lot of people in the neighborhood who are not happy about her moving in and um it's a time of great homophobia it's during the big aids crisis and lots of people don't like the fact that she's a lesbian and that she is um encouraging basically uh what they what they consider to be deviant people uh, to come to their neighbourhood, and so she has these hate mail and people spraying stuff on on her shop. And um, basically, the, the book is about how she overcomes that, but also how she forms friendships and relationships and learns a lot about herself and about the fact that actually, even though she's in her sixties, there's not there's there's a lot of life that she hasn't ever really experienced or known much about. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I read Parnassus on Wheels uh, for the first time maybe ten years ago. It was given to me oh, by really? yeah Danielle, who blogs at Work in Progress, sent me a copy. Oh, how nice! Um, which was very nice of her, um, and I really enjoyed it. Then the fact there's a sequel called The Haunted Book Bookshop that oh I, really yeah, which is one of those quite conflicting books. And that the first half is I absolutely loved, and it's sort of all about how one you know, how reading 
can change lives and it's a lovely portrait of a bookshop and then it becomes quite a bizarre spy novel so yeah. <laughs> um and i didn't enjoy that half at all so it's quite different from this book <laughs> but yes i had fun rereading it uh recently and this is my third may Sarton, i think um so we did the magnificent spinster a while ago for the podcast yes, we did and i read as you we were before that and with both those novels, I remember nothing at all about them, but I feel like I probably remember a bit more about this one. Um, I'm assuming this is your first Christopher Morley? It is. I've never heard of him before, the book before. Uh, it's not my first May Sarton. The Magnificent Spinster is probably one of my favourite books. Um, I absolutely love it. I've also yeah. read um, another book by her, which I can't remember the full title, but it's Joanna and something something. Maybe Joanna and the Donkey. It's set in Greece. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Um, so I was fully expecting to enjoy enjoy it because I, I love her style of writing and I did really, really enjoy it and I know what to expect when it comes to May Sarton. She's kind of a bit like, um, a bit like Anne Tyler, like her place isn't particularly demanding um, but there's a, a depth of wisdom to what she writes that I find really arresting um, and... Every time I finish reading something of hers, it always gives me so much to think about. And I've the same from reading this, really. Yeah, I have come away from it feeling quite conflicted about how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, because I loved reading about setting up the bookshop. Um, I thought that the prose was well written. Um, as you say, not, you know, unduly stylistically acrobatics and all that sort of thing but um but good but i thought the dialogue was so bad throughout that i found it really hard to get on with it because every character every single character says exactly what they're thinking all the time <laughs> and, and and i know that's sort of you know some characters are strident but there's no nuance it's like no one everyone says exactly what Mace Arden wants them to say they all sound quite similar to each other um and i just it just felt a bit awkward like people just saying whatever often quite polemical thing Mace Arden wanted to happen next in the scene and nobody spoke like a real person ever. Um, did you find, did you notice that at all? Did you think that at all or not? I did. I mean, I, I did think much more so than the other books of hers that I've read that, that this was written with very much an agenda. And um, I did feel that a lot of the characters were crowbarred in and were very, either very idealistic and unrealistic. Um, in the sense of like they were perfect and everything they said was you know so right on and um, and then other people were I think more unsympathetically drawn um, and there wasn't a lot of patience given to particular characters who were which I felt more should have been given to and the thing that made me uncomfortable with that actually is that it's very clear from most of May Sarton's books that she writes very much with her voice mm. and you know when you can tell that an author is advocating a particular opinion and you don't agree with that opinion and then that made me think, oh, you know, isn't she what I thought she was or is this she just a product of her time or, you know, am I looking at this from too modern a perspective? I don't know. I think you can probably, we can probably reveal the bit that you're yes. probably thinking of that you messaged me about before if you want to yeah, talk about what that is. Yeah, so I, mean, I text Simon immediately after reading it in horror. Um, there's, a, there's a character who comes into the bookshop who's... Um, quite a needy person she's quite irritating she's got issues with her marriage and she wants to be an artist and her husband wants to have children and she doesn't want children and 
she basically is the type of person who doesn't really have that many friends and is, is looking for someone to listen to her. We've all come across people like this in our lives, I'm sure, and they can be irritating. True. However, she comes into the shop one day looking for support because she, her husband has beaten her up. Um, and she's, you know, physically, she's bruised. She's, um, clearly, she's not lying. You know, it's happened. And she's just told by Harriet to suck it up and go home and not be so silly. Mm. And it's clear from the narration that that's, you know, she's just being hysterical and silly. And actually, it's kind of her own fault for the fact that her husband's beating her up because she's really annoying. So she deserved it anyway. And reading that, I was really shocked and quite upset thinking, well, hang on, I thought May Sarton was somebody I could trust. And now I'm not sure that I do. And it is quite shocking in, in place for all those reasons you say because it doesn't feel like it's a character thing no. it, because all the rest of the book we're very clearly meant to empathize with harriet hatfield i mean i did find her quite annoying as well at, <laughs> outside of that but um but yes that moment it reminded me i think it was a woman of my age by uh, nina borden uh, it might have been a different book for, uh, but something from the say 70s where something very similar happened that someone says, oh, you, he only hit you, didn't he? Sort of like as though it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, which obviously was a terrible opinion whenever it was given, but was particularly shocking for the late 80s because that seems so recent. Yes. Um, and I w- would hope that no, it wouldn't get published quite like this today. I mean, I'm sure there are people who still have that opinion, but the fact that it was sort of just taken for granted that the reader would be on that side yes. um, did stand out quite, so it was quite a jolt when you got to that section. Yeah. And I think, you know, there was there was a lot in the book that, that was really interesting and that was really of its time. I think it was really interesting to have that very first-hand account of what it was like to be homosexual at the time and the way that people uh, treated people. I mean, we're, I mean, obviously, we haven't come that far because a lot of people still are very antagonistic towards homosexual people now. Um, and it it was really powerful to read a lot of the stuff that she was saying and about how difficult it was for people and how ashamed a lot of people felt and um it was I found it really interesting from that perspective but in terms of was it a book where I grew to love the characters like I did in The Magnificent Spinster I would say no it felt to me more like I want to write a book about what it's like to be homosexual in Boston in the 80s how can I do this? Oh, I'm going to get someone to set up a bookshop that's for uh, that's got feminist stuff in it, and then we'll have some people disagree with it, and we'll have some really nice people to show that this is what we should all be like, um, and then there'll be a happy ending. And that was kind of it; just felt rather formulaic. Yeah, and I know we're not comparing it to the bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald, yeah. but, but um, it did that did feel a lot more nuanced in terms mm. of the enmity. Um, was more complicated. Her response to it was more complicated. You didn't get these sort of black and whites of, of virtue and, and vice. Yeah. Um, and w- which, you know, obviously there, not everyone is particularly nuanced in the way they approach other people, but, but in a novel, it's more interesting to read when they are. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, her talking about her experiences, I would have found more interesting if it hadn't, as I say, just, you know, perfect strangers would come to the shop and she'd start saying, oh, yes, well, I guess I always felt that my partner before was very domineering. It's like, you don't know who this person is. This is not how people interact with people they have just met. No. Yeah, and they didn't. it just seemed the way that people spoke had nothing to do with the context of the scene or the person they were speaking to or anything like that. It was just 
this is what I want this character to be feeling at this moment, therefore they're going to verbalise it. Which, for someone, it was her final book, and uh, and I don't remember feeling this way in the previous books I read. It just felt bizarrely unsophisticated for, for someone such yeah. an experienced writer. Yeah, well, that's what I mean about, I think she, it, it was a politically motivated book more than anything else. I think this is her kind of manifesto, um, and it's kind of like throwing she's thrown out all of the conventions of fiction writing because yeah I mean the the concept of I mean who goes into a bookshop and starts telling their life story to the person yeah. who's there and you know, your deepest darkest secrets and it's actually you know what yeah I will have that cup of tea and tell you all about my my marital problems uh, I mean, no, nobody does this. So, <laughs> or if they do, everyone thinks it's very strange. Yeah. Rather than sticking, oh sure, carry on. <laughs> this is exactly why I opened this bookshop to provide free counselling. I mean, exactly. it, it, no, it just it didn't ring true. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed oh, yeah. the process of reading it, but I I wouldn't say that it was something that I would read again. And in fact, it's probably going to go on my giving to the charity shop pile. Yes, we're sounding very critical, but I should say that I did really enjoy reading it. I think my yeah. problem was it, it was so nearly a much better book. Yeah. <laughs> it was frustrating. Um, and I had two questions which you might be able to help me with for this bookshop as well. I was confused <laughs> and I wish she'd been clearer. New Used books and new books or just new books? Because at one point she says, oh, or most of my collection can go to the stock. But then she never again mentions used books in that shop. And it's always publishers coming and selling their new books. I think she's got a mixture of both because it seems to me that because lots of people came in and were like, oh, I haven't been able to find this anywhere else. So I think maybe she's got some, I wouldn't say antiquarian books, but I think she's probably got some books that are hard to get hold of or out of print and she's got copies of them because they're from her own collection. And I guess in the 80s, people obviously would still have to just go to bookshop to bookshop to find what they wanted. They couldn't just... Could could you imagine... I know, they're very. I mean, I can remember, frankly, not the not the doing it in the eighties, but I remember doing it in the early two thousands. <laughs> um, and my other question wasn't really a question, but at one point, or when they're opening, she's they're making a thousand dollars a day in this small bookshop in the, in the middle of nowhere, and that's it seems an extraordinary high amount of money to be making. I don't know how much a thousand dollars was in the eighties, but you know more than it is now. Yeah, because um, I mean, most of the time when I pick up old books in america they have like a dollar on them for the original price so she'd have been had to sell a thousand books yeah and and she, and she doesn't think she's doing that well and it's like and it's extraordinary i mean i just read that diary of a bookseller by sean bythel at christmas i went to his shop oh you did didn't you mention it last yeah. time yes um and obviously has used books but he's often making you know 200 pounds a day or something and he's getting by and that you know, $1,000 a day must be, like, I don't know, 3,000 pounds or something today. Well, I think she says that in the context of it's the opening day. So she knows that she was going to make a load of money on the opening day. But then she's like, well, that's not sustainable. So I think, I think that's what they'll continue later. I can't remember. Maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. I could mm. be wrong. I could have misread it. But I, I know for sure, like, the other days she's made $10 kind of thing. I did enjoy the books that she mentioned. I felt quite nice, like when she's talking about Sylvia Townsend Warner and that sort of Yes, I thought that you'd like that mention. (laughs) And it was also interesting um, from the perspective of of thinking about how women's writers were really coming into the the fray in in the 80s and how there was clearly this renaissance in publishing and that lots of women were getting published at that time and people were interested in reading about women. And a lot of the stuff that the women came into the shop saying, like, you know, this is... These books speak about our experiences. These books are about us. I mean, obviously, nobody would go into a bookshop and say that, but 
But the fact that May Sutton was writing that into their voices shows that well, this, that was the zeitgeist at the time. And I think it's often quite difficult to understand, more difficult to understand recent history than it is um, history that's further in the past because mm-hmm. it's we can't imagine it being that different 20 years ago, but of course it was. And we don't remember it that well because we were only children, but... Yeah, and also sorry to say that 1989 is nearly 30 years ago. So. No, it's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, we should also, yes, let's talk about on Wheels as well, yeah. because, um, yes, in in broad outline, a similar story, a woman wants to, or a woman gets away from her previous life by running a bookshop. In actuality, it could scarcely be a more different book. <laughs> um, what did you make of it? I absolutely adored it. I think oh, it's yeah. one of the most wonderful books I've read in a very long time. The narrative voice is so funny and heartwarming and you just feel this great affection um, for her as a character. And I just loved all the... Um, Mr Mifflin was hilarious. I just I thought that the characters were so well-drawn and so um, individual in their way of looking at things. And I loved how... She was, say, she would say things like, you know, I've been baking 6,000 loaves of bread over the last three years. Yeah. It's about time I got out of this place. And it's just that real kind of, I suppose, I can't, don't know how to put it into words, but just, and it, I, I found it also really clever because it's written by a man, but he gets that female experience so well. I'm really glad you liked it because yes, I find it, completely delightful and it was just as delightful as I remembered it being the first time around and I think that is as you say a large amount to do with character because she's not a particular she's not a whimsical or flighty person she's been very you know nose to the grindstone of of doing what she and her brother have considered to be her duty I guess yeah and now she's like actually I've had enough I'm I don't have any she didn't have any, any particular aspirations to to run a traveling bookshop but that's the opportunity that came along she thinks why not I'll do that yeah and and yeah, Mr. Mifflin is exuberant and um, you know very. He's a very good raconteur. He's a very good salesman. Whenever they pitch up somewhere, he's always, he's giving all these wonderful speeches about how the books on his on his Parnassus can um, can yeah. uh, improve their lives, whether it's fairy tales for the children or a book about farming for the farmers, all that sort of thing. And I think it is that pairing of his exuberance and her down to earth, just like yeah. ready for something new, that makes it so so lovely. It is absolutely lovely, and you can tell what's going to happen at the end from quite early on, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a charming journey, and I also think it's a beautiful book for for talking about the importance of, of books to people, and especially mm. in, in a rural community, and it's actually really interesting because I've just had staying with me this weekend one of my best friends from America, he, he is um, quite big in the library world in America, she works in Washington um, doing stuff for libraries in America, and um, she was just talking about how important it is to get books to the people who can't access books. And this is exactly what this Parnassus does. It goes out to rural areas and goes to people's farms and goes into tiny towns where people can't buy books and basically gives them the opportunity to discover a whole new world. And these people that kind of are on, on, the, on the regular trail of the Parnassus greet um, the Parnassus with such joy and they're like come into my house come and have dinner come and stay the night what books mm-hmm. have you got read to me tell me more about this stuff they they want to have access to it but they they don't have any opportunities I mean this is the 
early 19th century in New England. I mean, where are they going to get books from? So Early 20th. Yeah. Early 20th, sorry, yeah, yes, yeah. that's what I meant. Um, so I just think it's it's wonderful, that idea of books as, as being gifts and him being an evangelist. He's often referred to as being like an evangelist, so he's an evangelist for literature. Mm-hmm. And I just think that element of the book is so wonderful. Yeah, so if, if Harry Hatfield is trying to bring books to this up-and-coming area, this is very much the only lifeline that they have for these books. Most people there only seem to have the Bible, yeah. um, potentially n- nothing else. Although I did love that a few of them, including being caught by a previous travel yes. salesman, who'd sold them 12 volumes of funeral orations, yeah. <laughs> apparently very beguilingly, because several of them bought them. But, um, but yeah, it is this, this wonderful sense that they are just providing this lifeline and she you know has to learn how to do it properly but and try and get some of his salesmanship but he's not doing it to be um you know to try and get money for people he does see himself as someone who is providing a lifeline to these people and and bringing richness to their lives yeah i mean i guess in a similar way to the mission of harriet hatfield just in a slightly in a more amusing way i guess (laughs) yes and more convincing way i would say and i think the relationship between the two of them is wonderful and what I love and which is a common theme as well with um, Harriet Hatfield is this idea of a woman who thought that her life was over and that she was in a particular rut and that was going to be her life from now on there was nothing more to come for her and even though I mean she's 39 and she goes on as if she's at 80 but it's this idea of actually I can't remember the line but it says somewhere towards the end of the book you know she she didn't realize that she had so much more yet to come for her and mm. that sense of of life being it's being possible to do new things and have experiences that change your outlook and completely change your way of life, no matter what age you are, I thought was was really empowering and inspiring. Yeah, it's lovely. And there there are a few slightly more bizarre uh, moments or a bit more actiony moments. Mm. With, you, know, tr- tr- you know, people trying to steal it. The and, tramps and, in the case, yeah. <laughs> And the one bit where I did wonder whether Christopher Morley had quite got his finger on the pulse of what women want, although, you know, <laughs> not a woman myself, was how thrilled she is when people are fighting over, you know, having fisticuffs around her. <laughs> well, we always do like to be, you know, fought <laughs> over. Yes, when her brother and this guy are, are having a fight, I do wonder if she wouldn't just be like, oh, we'll pull yourself together. <laughs> but, but apparently she's thrilled. So. <laughs> um, well, I'd enjoy it, so, you know. Well, there you go. I'm clearly, in the, I'm clearly wrong. Christopher Morley knew what was up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, it, I mean, her brother certainly isn't uh, an ogre or repressive, deliberately repressive being. He's just taken her for granted, essentially. Yes. Um, and doesn't understand that she hasn't been satisfied. She sort of thinks he's, she's been happy all the way along. I liked that there weren't any, apart from, you know, the ruffians they come across, no, The main char- none of the main characters are really that that wicked no it's all just very gentle and warm-hearted really isn't it and people understanding that other people have been taken for granted or perhaps they haven't appreciated things as much and you can tell everything's going to be fine at the end and that's what you want really isn't it yeah i don't know if because you read a kindle version didn't you my version has nice illustrations as well i don't know if you got those well no i didn't but i was actually um this this ties in so neatly to our earlier discussion um, I, I would actually like to buy a nice edition of it now because uh, I know I really love it and I oh, yeah. want to have my own copy so I shall be on the lookout for, for a nice original edition. Do you have an early edition? Or is it- 
I don't I did actually buy a nice early edition from my friend Lorna and I don't know if she's read it yet Lorna so if you're listening now's the time but <laughs> mine is actually uh, is a paperback from the 50s oh. Oh, no no it's not I was gonna say it doesn't look 50s 80s oh. <laughs> 80s uh, paperback so it's not a particularly nice edition so maybe I should replace my copy at some point but it is also the copy that Danielle sent me so that's you know for sentimental reasons nice to have that version so I'm sure you'll end up having about 10 versions of it and not giving <laughs> any of them away it does sound like something I would do yeah <laughs> uh, but I'm intrigued to know what you think if you do read the sequel uh, The Haunted Bookshop well you haven't really sold it to me yeah maybe I should reread it but I think I, I think it's I mean I don't really like spy literature so if you like if you don't mind spy literature then you'll probably quite enjoy it <laughs> I love spy books Spies, mysteries, detectives, I'm there. Well, in which case, it's probably, you may like it even more. But, yes, oh. detectives I like, spies, no. <laughs> Same. Okay. Um, I mean, I kept my copy, so I obviously didn't dislike it that much. No. Well, you uh, keep every copy. <laughs> I've got really good at getting rid of books. Yeah. No, sort of good. <laughs> <laughs> don't believe you. <laughs> I got rid of 350 books when I moved house. Well, that is so, impressive, actually. Were they all duplicates, though? <laughs> no, there were some of them, obviously, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I've still kept some duplicates because I can't, can't get rid of any of my copies of Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead by Barbara Cummins. <laughs> they're all different. They're all nice in their different ways. So <laughs> <Not> bad. <laughs> um, so the only other book I've read by him is Safety Pins, which was a collection of essays, which I really enjoyed. That's a cheap title. I like that. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I have bought quite a few books by him over the years, but, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, but um, have have read no more. But he he come yeah. Well, particularly when I was in America, I found lo- lots of his books um, in bookshops. But they tended to be old, enormous editions. You know, when as we say, I like a margin and a thick page and all that thing. But when you're thinking about what you can fit in your bag to get back on a plane, yeah, it's not <laughs> easy. Yeah, it's not that easy. But um, yes, I don't think he's not as easy to find here. No, he's yeah, because I I'm a bit annoyed now that I didn't know about him when I was in New York last in May because I could have looked in the Strand, but. Uh, yes. Never mind. I'm sure I'll be back in America before long. So, otherwise, to slip it in next to that Pride and Prejudice that yeah. you're sending to Rachel. You know, if anybody <laughs> does want to send me that as well, appreciate it. Gifts. Great. So, um, very different books, but you know, similarities we can draw between them. Yeah. Um, my favourite of the two is Parnassus on Wheels. I would say the same because I just found it utterly charming and uh, I know that I would read it again and again whereas I'm not sure that I would read the Harriet Hatfield again. So we'll say a reread was just as lovely so yes it does definitely rewards rereading and yeah I definitely I did enjoy the Mace Harton a, a lot but it just was frustrating that it was not the book it could have been and I doubt I will reread it but I do have others of on my shelf that I'll read next instead. Yes. Not to put people off May Sun if you haven't tried it before, because their other books are much better. There you go. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yes, and well, next time, before we go, um, we'll be oh, doing yes. two Paul, Paul Gallico novels, um, Coronation and Love of Seven Dolls, um, both of which are very short, so that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yes, and if you'd like to read, then it won't take you very long exactly. to catch up. Yes. Great. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.